0: Welcome to Fair Talk, where we set out to provide enduring discussions on contemporary topics relevant to our economy, with particular emphasis on food, agriculture, and the environment. My name is Brady Deaton, Jr. of the Department of Food, Agriculture, and Resource Economics at the University of Guelph. I'll be your host. Today, Barry Goodwin and I will be discussing his research on the effect of U.S. government subsidies on U.S. farmland values and rental rates. Barry is William Neal Reynolds, professor in the departments of economics and agriculture and resource economics at North Carolina State University. Barry, welcome to Fair Talk.
1: Ah, thank you, Brady. Good to be
0: uh, here. I should note to listeners that today's discussion will orbit around a paper that Barry and his colleagues have written, and the title of that paper is The Buck Stops Where The Distribution of Agriculture Subsidies, and a link to that paper will be made available. Barry, I love the way you start this paper, and I'm just going to throw the question that you pose um, to to your readers, um, a question that you took from a news report, and I think it's an interesting way to start this podcast. And the question is, what do former basketball star Scotty Pippen, publisher Larry Flint, and stockbroker Charles Schwab all have in common? Uh, and what's the answer to that question, and why is it important?
1: Well, they're all, all uh, benefit. A- Beneficiaries of uh, farm program subsidy payments. So, and they're not usually, you know, individuals that we would associate as as being uh, involved in production agriculture. You know, it makes for an interesting news story to find these different individuals that are are uh, very wealthy and very influential, and yet are receiving uh, farm subsidy payment checks.
0: And I'm somewhat related to this is I uh, was looking at Paul Barclays. Centennial history of the the American Agricultural Economics Association, and he's talking about forerunning meetings that forerunners of the association, and in particular looking at the Economic Society, and he talks about a session that was put together to examine the rapid increase of the system of land renting, the absorption of small holdings by wealthy landowners, and the abandonment of farms. But what's interesting about that is that it was a session that was put together in 1897. <laughs> yeah,
1: so, that was, that's fascinating, yeah. I actually, hadn't seen that, but it's, I believe that the farm ownership peaked at some point there back in the early part of the last century. So the number of farmers and that sort of thing has been sort of on the downward uh, trend ever since, so.
0: Now the numbers, uh, one aspect of this question is it turns out that a great portion of uh, farmland in the U.S., and I believe the phenomenon is relatively similar in Canada, uh, is owned by people that wouldn't be considered farmers or non-operators.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's, it's and, and even more fundamental to that is the fact that such a high proportion of, of farmland is is operated by a tenant, not the owner. And, um, you know, I think in the U.S. now, it's, it's a, approximately 40 percent. But if you go into some of the main production areas, like the, the middle of the Corn Belt, I think it goes even much higher. So it's, um, you know, a, an increasingly prominent feature of agriculture in developed countries in the U.S., and I know it's, it's very similar in Canada. Um, and so there's that part of it, and then there's the question, well, who are these landlords? Are they other farmers? Or I think what we generally think of, you know, if you sort of think of a anecdotal story that you might be familiar with, It's it's... Some retired farmer that's that living in the area and renting out their land to their neighbors, but USDA did look at this back. Um, I believe it was about 98 or 99 in one of their landowner uh, surveys, and they found you know some really really interesting findings that a, a lot of landlords are retired farmers, but uh, an awful lot of them don't live near the farm. They're not retired farmers. They're they're you know retaining ownership of this. land that may have been in the family, but they're not involved in production agriculture to any tangible extent at all. So, you know, it's, it's, it's some very interesting questions.
0: We did a survey, actually, in Southern Ontario trying to ferret out that question, too, and we found very similar results. So clearly, widows and widowers, are, that's a big category in retired farmers, but there's a lot of people, particularly in Southern Ontario, that are what are identified as residential landowners that may live on the land but aren't kind of actively farming and maybe commuting to another job. Exactly, so, yeah. So, so this is a big question, and... Um, you know, there can be pros and cons, I guess, in a variety of ways, but you're really looking at the transmission of the agriculture subsidies to the landowner, as well as the, uh, in the tenant. And I guess, talk to me a little bit about what the debate is or what the kind of think the general thinking of that and then we'll kind of go over maybe some of your general results and then move into the more specifics of your paper but what what would be the expectation of how that would play itself out
1: yeah so you know just to start with land value like like any other asset land derives its value from the the stream of of incomes that it's going to earn in the future and there's some uncertainty associated with those incomes and one thing we do look at in this in this paper and some others that we've done is is really just to 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 consider the fact that different sources, different policies, different types of income may have a uh, you know different degrees of uncertainty associated with it. so how they're going to impact uh, asset values could could differ as a result of that. but um, you know the, the the big concern right now, it, whether it's a concern or, or just a you know a feature of agriculture, it's the fact that high prices have driven up land values tremendously. Um, you know, it's just just been a, in the last five to ten years we've seen that, uh, just a real increase in in land values, and that's of course a capital gain to the landowners. It's um, you know a cost to somebody who's wanting to to get started in agriculture and acquire this land. Um, but there's there's a lot of issues that. that Relate to, to to the fact that these assets have, have you know, continued to gain value, and then there's also the question of who who are these policies really intended to uh, provide the benefits to? Um, the, the the legislation requires in the U.S. that that if it's a cash lease, that that the the uh, subsidy check goes to the the operator, the tenant, if it's um, a a tenant operator, and because they're they're technically the ones who are holding all of the production risk. That's that's the way it's always done. Now, has been done, and if it's a share lease, which is becoming less common in, in most areas in the in the U.S., but if it's a share lease, then the the, the, the subsidy checks would be uh, divided according to the, the terms of the share. But um, you know, one important question is if if, if the, the the checks, the cash leases, which which are the most prominent way land is leased, if, if the check is going to the tenant, uh, does that mean that the landlord is not benefiting from that? And the fact that so many landlords really are, are quite far removed from production agriculture now, is that the intent of the policy? Or uh, is that just a, you know, a consequence of the way the policies are, are, are distributed? Um, and it's, it's an important question as to really, if, if, if it's a cash lease sort of arrangement, does the landlord essentially raise, raise, uh, lease rates to capture some of those additional benefits when policies change. And and we believe they do. And I I think the literature's pretty clear on that. The the debate is over how much of that that um, dollar of subsidy stays with the, the operator and how much goes back to the landlord.
0: Right. So the, the 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 landowner is sitting there and they're they they become aware of a government subsidy that's going to the tenant. I guess the question is, do they capture that full subsidy, or to what extent is it shared? And and, and you kind of your research focuses not only in this paper on um, the total effect of say government subsidies on farmland values and rental rates, but also you're able to break apart the the different. Um, ag programs and see to see if there's differences in these ag programs on how they um, affect rental rates and uh, land values. I think that's pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, and again that goes back to and and we we have another paper back in um oh, I can't remember 2000 2003,
0: 2003 maybe. I think, yeah. Yeah, the AJ.
1: Yeah, looking at at really how we've modeled these the these, you know, uh, land value determinants and that sort of thing. And uh, what we look at there is the fact that it, it, it's several different things, but um, different sources of income, if they if they have uh, different risk associated with it, and, and certainly policy carries its own risk in terms of wh- whether it would be eliminated. I think, you know, we, we we've seen some pretty big adjustments to the fact that direct payments are going to going to very likely be eliminated if we ever do get a new farm bill in the US but if something is uh, very uncertain and the the operator is is risk averse then they're going to discount that the value of that going into the future with a higher higher discounting rate and it's going to have less of an impact on land values and what we've looked at is the fact that if you if you don't recognize that your models of land value and the 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 degree that that benefits are capitalized into asset values are, are really going to be flawed because you know different different policies will have different effects essentially. So,
0: uh, you emphasize in your paper over and over again that these land values, uh, for example, are based upon these expectations. Uh, um, these and these expectations may vary not only across what the market returns are, but also with respect to this sort of different portfolio of government payments that that come in. So what in general is is what would you say is your your big findings? And then maybe we'll step back and talk about some of the particular aspects of the study.
1: Yeah, well one one issue related to this that that, that you mentioned pertaining to expectations and again it goes back somewhat to this this earlier paper, but there's another another econometrics-type problem that, that arises that, that really just has to do with the nature of the data and the fact that it, it tends to be very systemically correlated in, in, um, across a lot of farms in a given year. So it, it, the, the implication is it, it, you'd know you you'd like to say, well, I'll look at what my payments were last year, and that's going to give me a good idea of what they're going to be next year and the year after and the year after, and that might work very well for something like direct payments, that um, are pretty much set for a certain period of time. But if you're talking about um, returns from disaster payments or, uh, you know, a, a price supports of some sort, uh, especially ad hoc support, that's not, not part of the, the um, standing legislation, you know, that what you actually observe in, in, in one year or another year, you know, or, or the past five years may not be a very good representation of what you'd expect to see over the long run. So it's another issue that I think, you know, it, it causes us to, to, to take another careful look at the way land values have typically been modeled in the past. So I, I think that's one thing that the paper brings out, um, probably more so in the earlier work that I mentioned. Um, the, the, I guess the, the real point of controversy with this paper relative to some of the others has to do with how, uh, in a cash lease arrangement, how... Uh, 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 payment is actually shared between uh, a landlord and their tenant, and it goes it goes of course to the tenant in a cash lease, but then the landlord extracts a portion of that back in terms of um, a, a higher lease rate. And those adjustments take place over time, and and you know it's it's a a moving target for 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 the producers and the the, the landlords and that sort of thing, but. I do know from from some of the work I've done with outreach that farmers have have you know felt these pressures from landlords, especially when policies change quite a bit. In 2002, we 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 got I was up at Ohio State at that time, but we got a lot of calls from from growers, and they were you know having to renegotiate their their lease contracts. So, other work has found that that I think we find anywhere from a 39 or 30. 35 cents, um, goes to the landlord or, or stays with the tenant rather. Um, or no, to goes to the landlord. I had it right the first time, about 35 to 60, 50, 60 cents, something like that. And it just varies across the, the policies, of course, but other works found that, um, landlords get a much smaller amount of that. And, and, um, some, some fine work that Barrett Kerwin did that, came to, to different conclusions but you know it's it's an empirical question and i think it just depends upon who you're looking at and what the what the market characteristics are at the, the point in time so
0: all right well let me ask so barrett we had barrett on an earlier podcast so we were talking about his uh his estimates that the landlord uh you know would would get i, I forget somewhere of 20 to 25 cents let's say um and so that would mean that the uh the tenant was getting a substantial portion of that um, that government dollar, let's say that marginal dollar paid by the government. And you find a, a much higher, I think a, in general, though, you have, like you mentioned, you have a lot of sensitivity analysis, but you find a much higher return to the landowner, which implies then that, as you suggested, that the tenant is getting less of that Um so, if the tenant, I mean, to me, the magnitudes are are um, really important here, right? Because if the tenant isn't getting, if the intention is to help the producer or who is, let's say, a tenant, and the entire subsidy is being passed to the landowner or most of it, then that has a very different uh, policy implication than, I guess, one in which they're getting the majority of the uh, of the subsidy and I yeah. was, do you lean towards the, being you know you know closer to the majority or how, how do you lean in terms of the magnitude I know I know oh, it varies I, yeah
1: yeah I mean I I think um you know I, I think of course I I would feel like our estimates are are closer just just um you know we can't set our our biases sure. completely aside on things but um a bigger issue and taking a step back for a second I I think that as, as economists, as empirical economists, I think that we, we really don't have still a real good handle. Uh, We, we know anecdotally how these, how these markets are functioning, but we don't have a really good handle on, you know, exactly what these, these uh, land transactions entail because there's, there's tradition involved, there's um, social linkages, there's, um, you know, uh, Proximity considerations. There, there's um, all sorts of arrangements that exist there, and we would like to say, you know, this is a, a perfectly competitive market, or one one side or the other has the advantage. And I think it's probably just a mix of of all of those things. It's it's far from being a perfectly competitive market because I think, you know, these things are negotiated by um, a small group of players. So there's there's probably some some game that would represent this in some way, but I'm not sure you could, could apply it to, to every single circumstance. So I think that's one reason you could see differences in some of the mm. results. Um, the period is, of study is, is has a lot to do with it, too, and it goes back to this this question of, you know, what are the policies? And, you know, one, one thing that that really I think we have a difference of opinion on in some of the research is, is some of the assumptions about what the nineteen ninety six uh, FAIR Act in the US really really signified and meant and what, what the policy environment was at the time. And you know, it, it thinking back, it was a, a a nice time to talk about cutting cutting support because prices were strong and and you know the, the fixed payments were were seemed like sort of a, a temporary measure to to Gradually get the government out of agriculture, but we all know what happened. Just you know, a year or two later, when the Asian financial crisis sort of uh, tipped markets in a way that that caused prices to fall, and, and Congress was very very quick to jump in with um, with with support price price supports. And it's also the case that that, that uh, direct payments were not the only thing going on right then. There was a whole other range of policies. The Fair Act didn't didn't eliminate Price supports completely and and so you know to say that this represented some sort of natural experiment i i I don't really agree with that because i think i think the conditions were uh such that it made the the policy change endogenous to what the market situation was and what the political situation was so i wouldn't wouldn't characterize it as a an exogenous shock to to markets and i don't believe farmers for a minute thought that uh, the government wasn't gonna gonna jump in if things things um, turned turned south for them as they did and as they typically do and as Congress has always been been uh you know quite willing to do to get out the checkbook. So that's that's one of the important distinctions. That's a very long-winded answer, but yeah, no, no, you know, no. I think um, we, I, you know, my my challenge to some of the younger researchers out there is, you know, help us figure out these these. Um, Contracts and these these rental arrangements because they are very sophisticated. They involve a lot of cost sharing. They're they're generally hybrids now between um, cash and share leases. And you know a, a perfectly competitive land market really doesn't fit the, the local uh, situation where these exchanges take place.
0: I think that's you know that's really one of the great things about you know the profession of applied economics or agriculture economics that. There can be general agreement on the you know, on the theory, but there's a lot of importance uh, to playing these, getting these magnitudes right. I mean, the difference between the majority of it going to a landowner, if that's not the intention of policy, versus the majority going to a tenant, have a lot, you know, have a potentially in the long run a lot, a lot of implications for how we perceive uh, and support ag policy. On this idea of. Um, expectations. One thing that I find just terribly fascinating about uh, um, your paper, and that also builds on what you just mentioned about what people thought at a given time was going to happen to government, is that you find that the marginal contribution of a dollar to farmland values is greater than the marginal uh, contribution of, say, an increased dollar in the market return um, and the returns to the market to farmland values. And at first blush, um, that that seems surprising. But when you get into this notion of expectations, it's, it kind of makes sense. Can you talk about that finding a little bit?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I I find it still surprising a bit. And you know, like like any empirical research, there's there's some some um, the results are driven by the the data and the the analysis that was done and the assumptions. And so you know, to be very clear about that. I, I would have expected a, a bigger role for the market, but there is an, an awful lot of uncertainty associated with, um, especially looking over this period of time when these, these data were collected, associated with um, the, 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 the stream of income that comes from uh, the marketplace. Um, you know, the median farm in the U.S., and a lot of this has to do with how you define a farm, but I think their their adjusted gross revenue each year is about um, a negative 15,000 a year or so. Um, it's it's you know a lot of farms operate uh, with a negative margin, and there's good reasons for that, having to do with with the the, the policies and again how farms are defined and tax tax uh, allowances and some of the special accounting privileges that that farmers get, but. You know, if you look back in time, things have been a little different since since 07 or so. But you look back, um, yeah, there's been a lot of uncertainty associated with market earnings and maybe less so when you compare it to something like a, a, a direct payment or even a, a loan deficiency payment that, that, that puts a, a floor under prices.
0: I mean – I, I found that the, the idea fairly compelling, at least um, abstractly, that if you're looking at government payments at, any, at the point that your data uh, is examining. Actually, let's go. What years are we examining again? Uh, you know, I'd have to
1: look at the paper. We've looked at this over you uh-huh. know, several different periods. I believe we're here, we're looking at from 96 forward on into the, um, you know, the, I think 2002 was where our data stopped at, actually. Okay,
0: so yeah. All right. So over that period, um, you know, the, volat- the expected volatility in market returns could could have you know been much much higher than the expected you know volatility in in government payments.
1: Yeah, I, that- I think so. Yeah, that's that's it exactly. And um, you know, there's there's some diagrams in the paper that sort of show some of this volatility that you know looking at d- various levels of aggregation and you know. Um, this this volatility, of course, as you get get closer and closer to the farm level, goes up quite a bit because of the 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 um, idiosyncrasies associated with individual farm earnings. So, yeah, I, I I you know it's it's surprising, but I think there's an explanation for it yet as well. So, uh, and another issue here, of course, is trying to 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 extend these research results into what markets are like today, because I just uh, saw today that. Farm earnings are, are supposed to be up. Um, net farm earnings in the U.S. Uh, 13% over last year. And that's, you know, last year was a, was a good year in spite of the drought. So things things are quite different the last few years.
0: When you think about the different kind of payments, and, and you kind of, do, uh, I should just mention to, we'll have links to this paper. One of the really interesting things of the paper is, you um, it goes into a fair amount of detail of the various government programs that it's trying to model. And then, you know, you do find differences uh, in the return, the effect of the different programs on rental rates and farmland values. Can you maybe just take, you talk about a distinction maybe between farm programs that have an insurance component into them. Um, and, and how those like countercyclical payments uh-huh. and how those have affected farmland values versus, let's say, a direct payment that may not be uh, tied to market conditions so much.
1: Sure. I mean, it's really as simple as sort of a, a wealth effect versus an a, a insurance type effect. And if you have risk averse growers, you know, they they're going to value um, policies that that serve to reduce volatility in the market and and volatility of their earnings, uh, you know, just on the the, the sheer fact that they they have that um, characteristic and and even if they're not necessarily increasing incomes. um, So, uh, you know, there's there's we've grown fond of the last several years of of trying to break policies down into, uh, wealth and insurance effects and, and these different things. And I think, I think there's a lot to be said for that. I don't agree with how some of the, some of the, um, characterizations are made sometimes, but, you know, clearly direct payments, fixed direct payments are a uh, direct wealth transfer to growers. There shouldn't be any uncertainty associated with that. Um, things like, uh, price supports and, and market loss adjustment payments, very, very, different type of policy entirely so and if you want to understand how you know how producers are viewing a dollar a dollar back in policy benefits you have to really consider what type of program that uh, policy benefit came through
0: so in terms of uh, the effect well, uh, the direct payment had a higher basically or lower effect than the ones that were kind of counter cyclical payments or
1: yeah, what? I believe it's um, there's less uncertainty associated with with um, you know a direct payment. It's it pretty much guaranteed over the the life of the uh, legislation. And then in fact, you know, one very interesting question that that that's sort of um, sitting there and and needing needing discussion whenever we think about these things is really did farmers truly believe that. Fixed direct payments were going to go down, and, and until they went to zero in 2002, and um, we know Congress, you know, was quite generous and extended those benefits in 2002, and again in 2008. It looks like they are going to go away this time. But um, you know, there's 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 gets back to this question of expectations and really, uh, what what's the policymakers' intent with with these um, you know billions and billions of dollars that they're they're sending out to a, a very wealthy segment of society anymore uh, what, what exactly is it that they're they're doing with this and, and and you know what are the intents and you know I clearly it's it's to garner political support and the fact that so much of the benefits, whether you believe uh, one number from one study or you know one from another, the fact is when, when you start carving up five billion dollars a year, you know, even if it's twenty percent or something, going to landlords, they're still getting a, a pretty big chunk of the the the, the um, overall benefit. So, you know, just is, is that it consistent with the intent of Congress? I, I would imagine it is, you know, but it's it's typically not what you hear when you're 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 listening to um, the policymakers' rhetoric, at least. So. Oh yeah, no, I think that
0: that that's one. You know, one real takeaway that I take away from from your study and your earlier studies, as, as well as um, Barrett's study, is that you know regardless, we have a whole lot of land that is owned by um, non-farmers and they are the beneficiaries of some portion of ag subsidies. And I think the general population, um, that's not the intent of, uh, or I think the general, I, I don't can't speak for them, but I think most people don't think of that as the intent of ag policy. I think thats yeah,
1: no, it's 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 a good question. and I you know I just just looking at the bigger picture of, of things, uh, you you've seen the real development of of sort of, i'd say the 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 general public's interest and understanding of of agricultural policy and and you know critical thinking about it in a lot of ways. and uh, a lot of that has to do that the, the, the individuals we started with, Scotty Pippen and everything we were talking about, um, all of that became possible because of the Environmental Working Group and their their um, database that they, they were able to track down to individual names and, and addresses where checks were being sent and that sort of thing. So, you know, it's it's the, 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 the taxpaying public is becoming a, a little more uh, critical of, of how these these dollars are spent. And, you know, I, I think that's good. I think that transparency is a, a wonderful thing, though. I think it's, it's really being threatened quite a bit by the the farm bill de- deliberations now moving forward. So.
0: Now, one aspect that I think is, is worthy of noting um, the, or the way, at least the way I think I'd like to get your kind of thoughts on it. Like uh, the, you, you don't want to, c- I wouldn't want to conflate the idea of concern about who the government payments are going to, with the with the idea of being critical of the rental market. I mean, non-farmer ownership of farmland, uh, see, and the rental market seem to be really um, healthy aspects of potentially of the farm economy. And that's really different from the beneficiaries of government subsidies. In the yeah, sense, yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, it's um, that's just a one of the benefits we enjoy of living in a. In, in, operating in what's still largely a free market is, you know, right. um, buyers and sellers and, and renters and, te- and, and landlords are, are able to work out mutually beneficial agreements. So there's, there's no question there, I don't think. And al- although you will hear, you know, um, you will hear cr- criticism from, uh, farmers sometimes that, that, you know, these these are we're, we're being taken advantage of. Our our landlords should not be able to to raise our, our lease rates when you change policy and that sort of thing. So it's mm-hmm. it's it's an interesting problem, I think.
0: Right, right. But I mean, it, to some extent, it allows say farmers to not have to have to diversify their portfolio. They don't have to have all of their assets in land. They can own a certain portion and still have production on an even larger portion because they're able to get into that rental market.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, it's it's not unusual to see, you know, a, a, an Iowa corn grower, Illinois corn grower that's, you know, farming 20,000 acres or something and has 50 landlords that they, they, right. they deal with. And the fact is, um, whether you believe economies of scale exist or not, I mean, I think it, it, at some level they have to, when you're talking about farm size and, and farm the the scope of the operation. And, you know, it, it, it essentially allows, allows for efficiencies to be exploited to the extent they exist. And it wouldn't be possible for a, a, a a grower to, to, to be able to produce on that many acres without going into the, the, the rental markets and, and, you know, dealing with a lot of, of different landlords in some cases.
0: Let me uh, just ask a, a kind of a moving from your paper a little bit, and I don't I don't know if you're mm-hmm. really in a position to answer this, but I, I would be interested in your sense of, you know, what's going on currently in in the with farmland values. We know in Canada and and it's similar in the United States. We've had pretty good appreciation in farmland values over the last bit, and. I'd just be interested in whether you think that's being triggered by fundamentals or potentially, as I think Barry Fox says in a paper, you know, I think he has a paper on fundamentals and fads and uh, kind of differentiates between what goes on in the short run and the long run. But do you have any sense of that issue or do you have a take on it?
1: Well, I I think, um, you know, a a big part of what we're seeing is is just a, a natural consequence of very high prices, which are being driven by the the biofuels mandate and then uh, to some extent, international growth in, in some of the the so-called brick countries—Brazil, Russia, India, and China—but um, you know that the, the, the EPA is talking about. Um, I think they've proposed, in fact, to to scale back some of the the ambitious growth in the renewable fuel standard. And corn prices have adjusted; they've come down a bit, and I think you'll see that impacting a. Land values. So, I think it is all very much policy-driven. Driv- even if it's not, um, you know, a subsidy program directly. Uh, when you have this, um, this this ethanol mandate and and the effect that that's had on markets, you know, it certainly has an effect on on asset values. And all you have to do is look at what what the appreciation rate, appreciation rates have been lately to to see it. So. Right. So, and, and you know, I think the question is back to expectations and and, and the uncertainty of those expectations uh, are, are are these policies going to stay, or are they gonna gonna change in the future? So
0: yeah, well, put I, I think it, in summary, it's fundamentals, but policy is a part of that fundamental, and expectations about those fundamentals include uh, policy. and certainly, um, that seems to me a big theme of your research in this area. hmm I, uh, is is there anything that you would like to add, or there's a, is there any kind of if you were you mentioned earlier, the younger economists? If this podcast gets listened to, not only by policymakers, but also by graduate students, and uh-huh. um, care to share any suggestions on where this research needs to go and what areas you think are really important in terms yeah, of yeah, no, it's a,
1: it's a good question. I, you know, I think I think our paper is is has got a big big hole in it because we really didn't look at, um, the subsidized crop insurance programs that are becoming more and more and more important. I mean, that's where the money is right now in, in, uh, the U S farm bill. I mean, that's, we're, we're talking about $10 billion a year, uh, typically that's, that's spent. Um, so I think that we need to, to also consider the political economy of those programs. um, and and they're, they're in fact um, have some some very interesting uh, implications or, or really loopholes in the WTO for how they're they're treated. So I think uh, a lot of countries around the world are seeing seeing subsidized insurance as a very popular way to to uh, subsidize farmers. Uh, so I'd encourage you know researchers that are looking at it to to consider that. And again, to the extent. We we can either through theory or empirics or a combination to 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 get a better handle on how these contracts actually, um, you know, are are arrived at and carried out and and and, and enforced uh, between landlords and tenants. I you know I think you can you could talk to an extension colleague and they could give you a lot of interesting information about what what the common practices are. But it'd be nice to to be able to quantify that and 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 to put it into a theoretical framework in some way and um i guess one one last sort of overall observation that we've been doing quite a bit of writing lately related to the farm bill Vince smith and i and and bruce babcock's been involved in it too um really just just questioning this 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 bigger question you know this overall issue of what 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 is the intent of Congress with these policies, and exactly uh, what are they trying to do? Uh, who's benefiting from these policies? And uh, the fact is that, that in the U.S., uh, agric- farm households, agricultural households have uh, much higher incomes. For the last several years, it's been higher. And then much, much higher wealth uh, than non-farm households in the U.S. And a lot of it is, is driven by this very issue of, of, of land values and the appreciation there. And, and some of that wealth may not necessarily be uh, terribly liquid, but it's, it certainly does represent wealth. Um, and you, you have a situation where we're, we're essentially, as, a, as, as a taxpayers, subsidizing, providing some rather large subsidy payments to uh what what in truth tends to be a, a very wealthy, uh very robust, very high income uh segment of of the economy. And as I said, I think the USDA forecasts are a thirteen percent increase in net farm income in, in twenty thirteen. So um you know it's 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 a paradox. I, I teach ag policy at the undergrad level and I, I tell the students in there, you know, I, I've been doing this for a while now and I'm still not completely sure what it is that these policies beyond uh, securing political support, what, what it is that they're they're intended to do because the things that we hear from congressional rhetoric really just, I don't think, hold up very well. You know, it's just, this is to preserve our national defense and this sort of thing. And there, there's probably some elements of truth in, in, in all of those things, but uh, you know it's 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 more of a puzzle than that, I think. So
0: well, that's 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 a great charge for the future and for our profession. Barry, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss your paper and your ideas with us today.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it, Brady. and if anybody has questions or comments, they certainly I'd love to hear back from them and they can just drop me an email easy to find on NC State's web.
0: Yeah, so. we'll we'll post a, an email for you. Okay. Good Thanks for joining us at Fair Talk. We hope you will continue to check our website for updates and the latest podcasts.